0: I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 15. You'll find that on page 939 if you're using the church Bible. And uh, before we do read God's word and hear it preached, let's pray. Let's call on him to be present with us and to bless the ministry of his word this morning. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the riches of the scriptures. We're thankful for every word and every phrase and every divine truth and everything that points us to your son, Jesus Christ, and we would see him and know him and hear him and love him more. We thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that it's free and unmerited and that you've done everything for us in your son. We thank you, Father, that we can enter in today and go deeper into this letter. We pray for your blessing on it. We pray that you would make the preaching powerful through the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray that lives would be transformed Lord Jesus, we ask you to mediate for us. We ask you to accomplish all your purposes for sending out your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 1, verses 8 through 15. There the Apostle Paul, writing to a church he's never met, never been to, says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever Well, I have had sort of a recurring experience over the years as I have read many of the great sermons in church history and I've also had the opportunity to sit under many uh, lectures and sermons and conferences and to hear men in our day throughout the church speak. And one thing has often struck me as I listen to men in public forums, and as I compare it with what I read in the sermons of the great ministers of the gospel in church history, is that while it's always dangerous to judge someone's motives, it's always dangerous to judge motives, there are times when when you listen carefully to what people are saying, you see deeply into the heart of the man who is speaking, and who ought to be speaking God's word, and who ought to be bringing glory to Jesus, and who ought to be pointing away from himself and to the Savior. And what you often see as you walk away from listening to others and reading sermons is, what's in the heart of the man who is there seeking to minister to people? Um, Recently, I was listening to a man who's somewhat well-known in the circles in which I'm in. After listening to him for many hours, I realized he said nothing about Jesus Christ. He sort of set himself up as a guru of church planting wisdom and knowledge. And, and as I thought about that, and then I thought about what Paul says here to a church he's never met, the Apostle Paul to a church he knew only a handful of people in, we know from the end of this letter, a church he had never visited. He's writing from Corinth after he planted the church in Ephesus, And he saves his greatest epistle to a church he's never met and to a people he's never met. And before he opens up the spiritual treasury of theological depths about Jesus Christ and the gospel, he he opens up his heart to them. He, in a sense, shows what's in a pastor's heart that's been motivated by grace and moved by the gospel. And it's evident, as we saw last time, that Paul can't take one step forward and mentioning himself without running to Jesus Christ and pointing others to Jesus Christ. He can't even talk about himself there in verse 1 without saying that he is a slave of Christ Jesus. Um, as I mentioned sermons that I've read in church history there's one that I often think about Robert Murray McShane who was um, one of the greatest reformed preachers in the history of the church in the early part of the 19th century in Scotland died at 29 years old and he has a sermon on the constraining love of Christ. And he asks the question, what made the Apostle Paul do all that he did? What magic spell was cast over the Apostle Paul that enabled him to push through all the beatings and the trials and the persecutions, to pour himself out, to constantly think about the churches, to constantly be thinking about ministry to others? What, what propelled, what was the secret formula for Paul? And, and McShane finds it in 2 Corinthians where it says, where Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. Now, I'm going to argue this morning that the same question can be answered the same way, but instead of the love of Christ compels us, the grace of God compels us. That's really the point of this whole text. The grace of God compels a pastor's ministry, and a people's ministry in the church and for the evangelization of the world. That's what this text is about. Paul has a pastor's heart motivated by the grace of God for the well-being of believers in the church and the evangelization of all men throughout the world. And notice, as we come to this, that in the first place, Paul sort of gives us um, a pastoral prayer for the church in Rome. He finishes that introductory section there in verse 8. He says, First, and you've got to love this. Paul never gives you a second or a third. He's First, he never gets to it. He gets so consumed in first. That's a man you have to love. So caught up with first. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Never met a soul in the church. Never met any of them. He knew a few that had probably moved there over time that he greets at the end of the letter. But he had never been to this church. And he says, I thank my God for all of you. I think there's a few things we can take away. One... I think that the fact that the greatest apostle writing the greatest letter to a church he's never been to shows that the message doesn't come from him it comes from God that the God who built the church has commissioned the apostle Paul who he redeemed to be an apostle in the church to write to the church and that this is not Paul writing to people they know I you don't know a lot about me but I hate letter writing when I was a boy my mom tried to get me to write letters to people thank you notes I, I don't know. It is like kryptonite to me. I don't know why. I will shoot off emails. I will talk on the phone for like six hours. I hate writing letters. And, and yet when I've written letters, they have been to people I have cared most deeply for. I have known most intimately who I am most grateful for. Paul has saved his best letter for a people he's never met. That's remarkable. That's a remarkable testimony to the apostolic um, office That the Apostle Paul was called to fill and notice he, he doesn't thank God for them per se or any gifts in them. And we're going to talk about this. Notice what he does. First of all, in his pastoral prayer, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul is thanking God for the gift of faith. You see, faith is not something men have in themselves. Faith is a gift from God. If you've believed in Jesus, it's because God has given you faith. You thank God for what God gives. Paul says, I thank my God because you have faith. That was a gift from God, and your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. That means that in that known world at that time, throughout Asia Minor, Paul understood that the church in Rome had some very vibrant Christians who other churches had been blessed by, and people were saying the saints the saints in Rome—they are rich in faith. They are trusting Jesus, and in, in it would be like New York City. It would be like New York City. It'd be much worse than New York City. Rome was the capital of the known world, full of wickedness. And here, this church and the people in it have their great faith spoken of throughout the world. I, I think it's interesting that um, there is a unity that is underlying what Paul's saying. These people are together. They're together. The faith that God has given them in Jesus has united them together and has become a powerful witness to the world. John Murray puts it this way, where faith is, it seeks the fellowship of the saints. Where faith is, it seeks the fellowship of the saints. And so here Paul is writing to a, a group of people who have been united together in Christ, have been given the gift of faith. And notice Paul's prayer there in verse in verse 8. He says, I thank my God. It's interesting. You, you would think that maybe there's some wasted words. There's no wasted words in the Bible. Paul doesn't say, I thank God. He doesn't say, I thank the Lord. He doesn't say, I, I, I give thanks to your God. He says, I thank my God. Paul is a man deeply committed to praying for the church, to God who he lives in intimate fellowship with. Listen, God is not some, some force, some impersonal force. Um. The Apostle Paul had an intimate relationship with God. That's what all Christians are called, to have an intimate relationship with God. And this is remarkable. I think when we look at our lives and we say, you know, prayer is often lacking. We don't pray like we should. And then we start to calculate why. Well, I've got to go here. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. And we pretty much say, I'm too busy for prayer. There was no one as busy as the Apostle Paul. There was no one busier than the Apostle Paul. And he always found time to pray. And he prayed for the church at large. And he prayed for people he had never met because he saw God's grace manifested in their lives. And he was thrilled to see that grace. You know, when I think about, when I think about our own prayers, and it's good for us to think about our prayers and to think what sort of things we bring before the Lord, how much of our prayer life is taken up with the people God has given faith to and thanking God for them, thanking that God for the grace that's come to them, thanking God for the gifts he's given them, thanking God that he is working in them and building them up. And Paul, at the outset of this letter, before he gets to any of the rich doctrine in this book, basically says the first thing, the primary thing is to give God thanks for the faith that he has given his people and how he's working in his people in the church. I think the reason Paul could do this with such sincerity is because Paul had been a recipient of so much grace himself. Paul understood the greatness of the gift of faith because Paul didn't have the gift of faith until Jesus brought him to his knees on the Damascus Road and with the largest grace that has almost ever been poured out in church history, turned the greatest persecutor into the greatest apostle. And so when he looks out and he looks at other Christians, he's grateful. And, you know, I think if that's lacking in our lives, if thanking God for others and how he's working in others in the church is lacking, it's because we've forgotten that we've been the recipients of grace. So grace is what motivates the prayer of Paul. The pastoral heart of Paul comes because he has received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He's had his sins forgiven. He's been reconciled to God. He's been made a new creature. And so his heartbeat is elevated by the faith of God's people. Paul's heartbeat is elevated by the faith of God's people. We'll notice then in his pastoral prayer that he moves on from Thanksgiving now really to petition. And notice in verse 9, he says, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you, Always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul had tried to come to this church. He had tried to visit them. He had been hindered. He had been sidetracked. God had different plans for Paul. But Paul was always zealous for the spiritual care of the people. He wanted to come to them. And you know, much like our reading of the law today, when James says, do not say, I'll go to this or that city. Buy, sell, trade. Make a living, but say, if God wills, I will do this or that. I will live and I will do this or that. Paul is essentially saying, I am trusting God. To even to get me to you. I am trusting God even to open the door for me to be able to come to you and see you and bless you with the ministry of the word. I am trusting God not just to get this letter to you, but that I could come to you and further minister to you through the teaching of the word. And what a lesson for us. Notice this. He says, Asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. It should be a staple of our lives that we are asking God to open doors for everything in our lives, for our church, for all the needs of our church. You know, I'm shocked. I'm shocked at how little I find myself doing that. And how little I see others all over the world in the church doing those things. Praying that God would provide for every single thing in the church. That he would open every door for further ministry and for the spread of the gospel. That he would open every door for the evangelization of the world. That he would open doors for churches to work together in fellowship. Other like-minded gospel-centered churches to minister together and to be together and to fellowship together. And Paul, his prayer, notice Paul's prayer is really not anything for himself. That's the remarkable thing. The Apostle Paul is absolutely selfless in his prayer because he has received the rich grace of God in the gospel, and it makes him think about others and how others can be built up and blessed. When I was a boy, my dad used to always... um, say to my sister and me, and, and got to a point where I really despised hearing it, but he would always say, we need to be praying that we would be interested in the needs and interest of others. We have to be asking God to make us interested in the needs and interests of others. That's a prayer I've prayed many times um, in my Christian life, post-conversion, because even to be interested in the needs and interests of others is a manifestation of God's grace. And we need to even be praying for that so that we would learn to be motivated by God's grace in the gospel to thank God for other believers. We're all at different levels, too. I think this is here in, in the text that even though the believers' lives in Rome had been a testimony to the grace of God that their faith had gone out to the whole world, Paul never has a you've made it mentality, You've made it good for you. Never had a good for you mentality. Paul always has a, we need to go on and be established. We need to be established in the faith. We need to be built up in the faith. And I think that helps us in a couple ways, because if you're anything like me, one of the difficulties is when we look at other believers and we see them at different levels and different stages, it's very easy for us to fixate on what's wrong and not to fixate on what God has given by grace in their lives. Very easy to fixate on what we see in others and, and to forget we need the mindset, this is not just an apostolic mindset, but that we would have the mindset of thanking God for all the other believers that he has brought us together with and that we, have, we know of in the community around us and that we would be praising God for the faith he's given them, that we would be praying for ways to bless them and to spiritually enrich them. And I think Paul gives us that example magnificently there in verse 8 through 10. We'll notice in verse 11 and following, he's going to give us secondly the spiritual care that's in his heart, and we've kind of touched on this. Notice this, he says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I have often intended to come to you, but I have been hindered in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, Paul wanted to come to the church in Rome so that Paul could minister the apostolic gifts God had given him, that perhaps the laying on of the apostolic hands and giving those non-normative supernatural gifts that went on in the first century, that Paul would even bring some of those to the church and bless the church with them, that he would build them up in the preaching of the gospel. And yet, notice this. Notice the little hidden phrase there that Paul says. He wants to come to impart to them some spiritual gift. And notice verse 12. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. That means that I need you... And you need me as a minister of the gospel. That means that there is a mutual need for pastors and people. And I think if we adopted that as a congregation, I think if New Covenant Presbyterian Church adopted that mentality as a congregation, I need you. I need to be mutually edified by you and build up in in the mutual faith with you. And you, again, um, seeing a need for the ministry that I may come and, and impart a blessing to you through the preaching of the scriptures and the ministry of the gospel, that how that would look in radically transforming our congregation, our lives together in the world. Paul, Paul is as much in need as the church. The apostle Paul is as, in as much need of fellowship with other believers as they are to receive the ministry of the word from him. Let me read this again because I love this quote. And you might, I I don't usually encourage writing down. I would write this down if, if you can. Where faith is, it seeks the fellowship of the saints. Where faith is, it seeks the fellowship of the saints. That means... We should long to be together in every ministry opportunity we have in this church. We should long to be together in fellowship with one another in this church. That's why we do things like small group. That's why we do things like the nursing home ministry. That's why we do men's group. That's why we do the women's Wednesday. That's why we have all of these things in addition to the worship service where faith is, where faith is. It seeks the fellowship of the saints, um, I'm going to say this, and it's going to be hard, and I know that. If we're not seeking the fellowship of the, of the saints, we're not seeking to be together, it says something about what's going on inside, and, and, whether we, and maybe we just have a very, 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 very weak faith. But where faith is in Jesus, it always seeks out the fellowship of the saints. The greatest apostle felt his need for a church he had never met the greatest apostle, felt his need to be in fellowship. It wasn't because here's a church with the programs I like or the people I like or they have an age demographic that I like or they have this going on or that. He had never met this church. He had never met them. And he says, I need you. I need to be encouraged by you. You need me. I need to come so I can impart a spiritual blessing to you. Think about how revolutionary. Think about how revolutionary it would be if New Covenant Presbyterian Church took on that form and that shape of the people longing and needing, needing to be together, not just, well, it'd be nice to go. I need to be together with the saints. That's what faith calls for. And so Paul gives us that beautiful picture of the spiritual care of a pastor for a church and his own need for spiritual care, And then finally, and I want to kind of focus on this as we walk out of this this morning... Note the evangelistic zeal of Paul in the gospel. Now, remember, this is a church that had already heard the preaching of Jesus. Probably some of them heard it when Peter preached at Pentecost. There were some from Rome, it says in the book of Acts. And they had probably taken the gospel back to Rome. Others had probably moved from other churches to Rome. It was a center place. It was the major city in the known world at that time. That church had been planted. The gospel had come. And yet Paul sees that more gospels needed, more preaching of Jesus is needed, more evangelism Evangelistic preaching is needed. And note what Paul says. He says, I've often intended to come to you. I've been hindered that I may have some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul was always thinking outward. He was always thinking about people that didn't know Jesus, that needed to hear the gospel. And I want to say this this morning as emphatically as I can. If you don't think Richmond Hill is a mission field, you are not having the right conversations with people. You are not having the right conversations if you don't think you are living in a mission field. There are so many people who do not know Jesus in this town. And when the grace of God comes and the mercy of God in Christ comes, not only does it give us a zeal for that, but Paul uses the strongest possible language ever. He says, and and the ESV is not a good translation, he says, I am a debtor. I am a debtor both to Greeks and Jews. Notice this, to Greeks and barbarians, I am, verse 14, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, it's a curious phrase, I'm a debtor. One of my favorite sermon titles in church history, a guy named W.G.T. Shedd has a sermon called Every Christian a Debtor to the Pagan. Every Christian a Debtor to the Pagan. Think about that as we think about the change in our country's moral compass and how we react to that. We may get upset about that, and, and that's okay. It's okay to be concerned and deeply care about that. But as we are deeply concerned, do we have the mindset, I am a debtor to the pagans, I'm a debtor to those that don't know God. I am a debtor. I am in debt to them to bring them the gospel. What does that mean? What does it mean? How can Paul say that? Why would Paul say that? Well, I think I'm going to read to you, I think, the finest answer. John Piper gives this illustration on this verse. He says, if you're in trouble along with lots of other people, if you're in misery, or you're in a mega-disease or some terrible tragedy has happened to you and you're all in peril, and suddenly you find a remedy. Suddenly you find a remedy. You find a rescue. You find an escape. You receive it with singing and joy. It just came to you. You didn't qualify for it. And you don't look at the others in the same calamity and feel indebted to share the escape and the remedy with them. What What you in effect say is, I was qualified They weren't. When we don't have a, I am a debtor to all men to bring the gospel to them mentality, we are in effect saying, I was qualified for the gospel and they are not. Listen to this Piper. This is so magnificent. He says, what you in effect say is I was qualified. They weren't. That nullifies grace. That's the end of grace in your life. If you know grace, If you know what it is to be freely approached by God, called by God, raised from the dead by God, given the gift of faith by God, brought into fellowship with Jesus by God, freely apart from any qualifications on your part, then when you walk out of here, you will not be able to lay your eyes on another human being, cultured or uncultured, and say, they don't qualify because you didn't qualify. And since you didn't qualify, they are no less or more deserving than you are, and therefore you owe them the gospel. I think that's very powerful. Then unless we have in our depths, and I think we often do, have a I was qualified mentality, and I deserve this down in there somewhere. I know we do, unless we're perfect. Somewhere we have that old man wrestling. And when we realize that God's grace was 100% free, undeserved, unmerited, came from the sovereign goodness and mercy of God to us in Jesus Christ because of what he did, we should walk out of here and see other people and say, I owe them the gospel. I owe them the good news of sins forgiven, reconciliation through the blood of Jesus. And so what I want to say this morning is that from start to finish in verse 8 through 15, everything that motivates everything that Paul prays and tells the church in Rome he wants to do is driven by the grace of God in his own life. Now here's what I want to ask you as we close. When you think about your own relationship with the Lord, do you think I am utterly undeserving of any of his goodness? I deserve hell. I deserve hell. That's why hell's important. That's what I deserve. I would be there if he hadn't had mercy on me, if he hadn't found me in a pit of spiritual deadness and decay and he by his free grace raised me from death to life united me to his son and i am the most undeserving person on the planet and i believe that we need to get to the place where we can say i am the most undeserving person on the planet and paul thought that about himself and that's why and here's the, the most amazing thing that's why paul was the most excellent pastor and missionary that maybe the church has ever known apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. Paul got the freeness of the grace of God, the undeservedness of everything that he was in Christ, and it drove him on to give the gospel to everybody because he saw he was a debtor to everybody. He didn't owe God anything. Doesn't owe God anything. Not a debtor to God. Grace is free. Debtor to men debtor to the church, slave to Christ, pressing on and driving forward. You know, I opened with that illustration about listening to men and kind of trying to, to formulate, are they doing this because they want greatness for themselves or are they doing this because they see themselves as bondservants of Jesus Christ? I think if I could encourage you with one other thing today, that you would take what Paul does here and you would consider it And every minister that you ever listen to, starting with me, and every public speaker who claims to be a spiritual leader that you listen to, starting with me, that you would sift it through the motivation of the Apostle Paul because he, my friends, is the example of a redeemed minister and what that ought to be. And if it doesn't meet up to that criteria, you should run a thousand miles away from that ministry. You should shut the book You should turn off whatever you're listening to. You should leave the conference. If the heart of a minister is not to see the people rooted in the grace of Jesus Christ and build up in him, putting away from themselves. You know, Paul was not a, I want to change the world kind of man. He didn't have a, I want to do something great and change the world with my ideology. Paul, let me remind you, Paul was probably smarter than most people on the planet, Paul was trained in the best theological institutions the world knew, and he knew the Greek philosophers as good as the Greek philosophers knew themselves, and yet Paul never brought attention to that. He said, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul never flaunted his knowledge. He never drew attention to himself, and he even said to the church, I need you. I want the mutual edification of the faith with you. That's a pastor's heart. That's a Christian's heart. Ask that you'd be praying that God would give us that heart and that we would see that manifested in this church throughout the world, that God would use this congregation powerfully. It doesn't matter if we're small. It matters, do we have the faith that Paul's speaking about and do we have the fellowship that Paul's speaking about and do we have the mindset that Paul's speaking about? Do we see ourselves as debtors to the world to bring the gospel? Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that we fail in so many ways to exhibit what Paul has exhibited, and so we ask that you would give us a greater measure of grace, a greater remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ, what he did at the cross, what he bore for us, the travail of his soul, the, the work of redemption that he alone could accomplish. And Father, we pray that you would remind us of what we were when you found us and that you would give us the I am a debtor to preach the gospel to all mindset. We pray, oh God, that you have mercy on this congregation, that you would build us up, that we would care deeply for one another and want to bless each other in the spiritual riches that we have in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.